You can be seated. Good morning, everyone. Half of you, I think, are asleep or something. Good morning. I have very disappointing news for many of you today. The sermon is not about bylaws. Um, In all seriousness, we're starting a uh, new series today. I'm excited to talk with you about a couple announcements we'll do at the end related to what happened last Sunday night. But this morning, we're going to start a series of talks in which we're going to look really methodically at prayer. And um, it has been a great year or so of preparation for my own heart. I hope it will be an encouragement to you. Prayer is a nearly universal phenomenon. It seems that almost everyone prays sometimes. For those of us who are Christians, uh, prayer is a privilege. But sometimes that privilege can feel more like duty than delight. Sometimes it's a lot more work and effort than it is something we just long for and naturally go to. In this series of talks, we're going to go deep and dig deep into a kind of praying that Jesus told his disciples would would change their lives. He said if, if they would make this their pattern of prayer, then it could very much shape the contours of their hearts. So it's going to be great. If you would, look at uh, Matthew 6 with me. That's where we will be for the next several months. If you don't have a Bible in the chair in front of you, there should be one, and we're on page 560 there, 560 in the chair Bibles. Uh, Two books that have been especially helpful to me in this uh, series are available at the back in the bookstall. Um, One of them is called uh, A Praying Life. It's by a guy named Paul Miller. And uh, one of the things we want to do in this series on prayer is just talk very transparently about both the joys of prayer and also the challenges. And some of us in the room today are more wired to respond and to pray often, and others of us, prayer is often more difficult. So we want to try and be real open and transparent about that. This book is great for people who would say, um, I got to be honest, I just struggle to do it. And I struggle because it feels awkward, it feels strange. How am I talking to somebody that's not there? I don't see God. And besides that, I got all these problems in my life. How am I supposed to work through those problems? So these are available at the back, but I'd love to give two away to people who would say, I really struggle with this, and I want to be honest. And by taking it in front of the church, I'm going to commit to read it. So those are the conditions. And Soru, excellent, come on up. I've given you one recently, haven't I? You're just like, I don't think I've given a Abiola one. Come on up. Thank you. Thank you. Why does it feel like a funeral in here today? Do you, it, the mood is... That must be why. <laughs> that evens out for you? All right. I, have, I don't know what to do with either of those comments. Um, for the majority of this series of talks, we're 
we're going to simply move through this passage in Matthew 6 almost phrase by phrase, word by word. We're going to go really, really, really slowly. And the reason for that is instead of taking large chunks of Scripture like we did in John over the summer, we're going to slow way down and really ask God to help us capture every word and learn from it together. So let's read this entire section, and then um, today we'll frame what not to do. And someone answer your phone. It's ringing 900 times. Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward in full. And when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, as we enter this um, season of life as a church, where from now until the first Sunday in December, Lord willing, we're just going to walk through this chapter. We're going to cover these words very carefully and slowly because we will admit as people that we need to learn how to pray. Thank you that you've not left us without guidance. Thank you that your scripture clearly articulates for us, this is how to approach you in prayer. You've given us a model through which we can build lives of prayer. And no doubt, many people in this room pray every day, many times a day. And yet, there's always room to grow, to mature, to know you more. And so we pray both for the Christian and the non-Christian in the room, that through this series of talks, you would help us to meet with you, that we would learn to talk with you in the way that you have instructed us to. We pray you'd speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. When giving directions about how to do something, most of us don't start with saying, don't do this, but rather do this. But that's exactly what Jesus did. And so today, we're going to simply talk about how not to pray. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus approach the question of prayer by saying, first of all, don't 
do this? Well, it's probably because there's two basic ways to pray. We're going to spend the next two months looking at prayer together. There's an enormous amount of material that we're going to cover. And people spend their entire lives learning how to pray. But at the end of the day, Jesus seems to say, there are two basic approaches to prayer. There's two ways we commonly think of it. One approach is about meeting with God. The other is about bolstering up a reputation with people. One approach is about talking with the Father. The other is about pretending to talk to the Father so other people will think we're spiritual. One is grounded in a knowledge of who God is. The other is grounded in a knowledge of who we are. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the first kind of prayer, genuine prayer. But in order to do that accurately, Jesus says we first have to consider the counterfeit of prayer, what real prayer is not. So a bit of a warning, today's sermon is going to feel like a punch in the face. It's going to hurt. But Jesus will punch us because he loves us. There's grace for us even in the hard words of Jesus. Jesus says today in this passage that there's two common habits that people can have in prayer that we need to avoid. The first one is what he called hypocritical prayer. And the second is what we might call pagan prayer. So I just want to lay out those two ideas, and hopefully it will guide us in our prayer life. The first is Jesus said, don't practice hypocritical prayer. You'll see that in verse 4. Most things we do as Christians are seen. It's pretty obvious whether you show up at the church gathering or not. People will notice if you're not here. It's pretty obvious if you come to your GC or not. It's clear if you engage in an area of ministry. People will notice. And people likely around you even pay attention if you put money in the offering plate or not. None of those things are particularly bad. God's design is that we as Christians would be members of each other and would help each other live out our Christian lives in public ways. When we become Christians, we become Christians individually, but our lives as believers are always lived out in community. Christianity is much more of a we sport than it is a me sport. But when it comes to prayer, in prayer we have a genuine test of our spirituality. In prayer there's real test of the health of our faith. You see, there's a private life of prayer that is just between you and God that no one will ever see. Jesus is concerned that that main means of connecting with God not become hypocritical. Today, we've come to use the term hypocrite to refer to somebody who's fake. So a hypocrite is somebody who's phony or fraudulent. She acts one way around one group of friends and around another is completely different. We'd call that person a hypocrite. 
He's faithful to his wife and says he loves her, but his life is wrapped up in internet pornography. We'd say that's hypocritical. She says she's fine with the major her parents want for her, but internally she has absolutely no interest in the career that would lead her to. We'd say that's hypocritical. He says he's doing everything he can to find a job, but really he's just sitting around in his underwear playing video games. We'd say that's hypocritical, right? That's the way we use the word today. But in Jesus' day, the word was used differently. It was most often used to talk about an actor or an actress. In the theater of the ancient world, there obviously was uh, no movies in the way we think of them today. People didn't dress in costumes and have computers transforming the way they looked. They simply held a mask on a stick in front of their face. And so as you acted as an actor or an actress, you were a hypocrite. You displayed the face and the actions of someone different than you were. You get the image? Jesus is saying, when you go to God in prayer, don't, don't hold up a mask. Don't pretend to be someone you're not. Brothers and sisters, there's a kind of praying that God hears and he delights in, he enjoys, and he responds to. And that's the kind of prayer we're going to spend a lot of time considering. But today, we need to talk about the kind of prayer that gains the admiration of people, but God pays no attention to. What's the difference in those kinds of prayer? Motive. Hypocritical prayer is motive for self. Genuine prayer's motive is for God. Hypocritical prayer is prayer done to be seen by others. Genuine prayer is prayer to get to know God better. Friends, Christians in particular in the room, hypocrites do tremendous damage to faith in Jesus. We all know that and have likely experienced it. Whatever intellectual arguments our society might have against Christianity, so the stuff of the academy, the stuff of academic books, whatever academic arguments, intellectual disagreements with Christianity our society might have, the street-level arguments are that we're just a bunch of hypocrites. Your friends who don't believe in Jesus, when you get into significant conversations about faith with them, they're most likely to say one of two things. Number one, I'm glad you found something that's good for you. Go for it. I don't need that, though. That's very much rooted in our, our version, our perspective of truth. The other is Christianity can't be true because it's just full of hypocrites. Have you heard that? If you haven't, it's because you're not actively engaged in the life of non-Christians because that's what they most often will say. So here's what the unbelieving world thinks of us. We're hypocritical. One example, and, and some of you this will make upset. That's not my goal. My goal is to just show you that this is what is most often thought about us. 
couple of weeks ago, um, an article in the New York Times was written in particular to talk about evangelicals who are supporting Donald Trump by the mass. And here's what he said. It'll be on the screens. No matter, the holy rollers are smiling upon the high roller. And they're proving yet again how selective and incoherent the religiosity of many in the party's God squad is. Now, before I go on, I am not trying to say anything about Democrats, Republicans, or the two of you that might be independent. Not my goal. I just want to point out what, he, what a non-Christian is saying about evangelical Christians based upon hypocrisy. Right here, it goes on. Usually the disconnect involves stern moralizing, especially on matters sexual. By showily devout public fitters, <laughs> figures who are then exposed as adulterers or, gasp, closet homosexuals. I'd list all the names, starting with Josh Duggar, and working backwards, but my column doesn't sprawl over an entire paper of the newspaper entire page in the newspaper. Or the disconnect is between evangelists, jerics, that's a hard word. It means spoken praise about Christ, that word means poverty, and their hustle for funds to support less than penurious lifestyles. Ouch. Frankly, I think that's hard to argue with. I think he is exactly right. So how do we respond to friends that perhaps not in that elegant of language, but would say to us, I can't consider Christ because Christ's people are a bunch of hypocrites. Well, let me give you two suggestions. First, just say, you're right. In many ways, that is true. But second, and perhaps a bridge into conversation, would be, tell me why that matters so much to you. Because behind that whole system of thought is an underlying belief the good news of the gospel is that even broken hypocrites are welcome. The good news of Christ is that Christ died for hypocrites too. So who are we trying to fool? If you're a Christian and you actually understand your faith, then you know you're not yet perfect. There are areas of inconsistency between what you say you believe and how you actually live. You talk something you don't actually walk in every moment of everyday life. That means, at some level, we all struggle with hypocrisy. There's some measure of inconsistency in all of us. Now, the difference between Matthew 6, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6, that kind of hypocrisy, and the hypocrisy many of us struggle with 
is that genuine, maturing Christians want to change. Jesus is not referring to people in Matthew 6 who are struggling believers aware of sin, falling often on our knees, confessing, God, help me. They're instead people who pretend to have it all together. Are you with me? That makes sense? We know that we're not yet perfect, and we're humbled beyond words that Christ died for us and gave his perfect standing before God to us. So the heart of a Christian is, I'm an idiot, and Christ died for me. And I'm not going to finish growing out of my idiosity until I die. And if that makes me a a hypocrite, then so be it. How different our evangelistic efforts would be if we postured ourselves as imperfect people in need of God's grace. The problem is that often we forget this kind of truth. God, by your grace, may I live a little less like an idiot today. Help me to be honest with myself and my fellow Christians. But a hard-hearted person, someone who is not really saved at all, is at home with hypocrisy. It, it feels normal. It doesn't bother them. That's the person that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. And if perhaps there's one or two of you here today, friend, I would say to you, Jesus' hope for you is that this would gnaw at your heart, that it would hurt that it would convict you and break you in order that you could know the joy of walking with Christ through salvation and the gift of the gospel. Friend, if that's you, do you realize how sick your heart is? You're satisfied with someone thinking well of you, thinking you're more godly than you are. And that's more important than actually living a godly life. That's really, really bizarre. Jesus has hard words for that. I'll read them in just a second, but if I could paraphrase them, here's what he says. Enjoy the favor of people now because you're not going to get any favor from God. That's what verse 1 says. Look at it with me. I warned you this was going to be hard. All right? Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Friends, God says we might be able to fool each other with big words and big prayers and serving in a public way and avoiding the, quote, big sins. But we can't fool God. God knows. So, to the believers in the room who struggle to live consistently with what they say they believe, at some level, there, there is a battle for hypocrisy there. But friends, that's not the hypocrisy that Jesus is referring to in, in Matthew 6. And it's not the hypocrisy the world struggles with in terms of how they look at Christians. That hypocrisy is the hypocrisy of people pretending to walk with Jesus who are not. And always that comes out. Eventually, it will display itself. 
So God's giving you a gift today, if that's you. He's calling you to the gospel. A gospel that forgives anyone of anything if you'll come to Jesus and repent. So many times when I am meeting one-on-one or even one-on-two or three discipling guys, we'll sit at a coffee shop, have a really great conversation about things in the Bible, and then I'll typically end that by saying to one of them, so why don't you close us out in prayer? Now, I'm not going to name any names, so don't stop panicking, but very often, competent guys will look at me when I say that like I just asked them to explain how physics works. They, they look stunned and petrified. What's that about? Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever done that? I think it's because it's easy for us to sit and talk to each other and blow smoke while we're meeting, but we know intuitively we can't do that with God. And and prayer has a way of just flaying us open before him. That's part of what makes it so wonderful. So in other words, sometimes brothers will think they've fooled me with all the Bible talk, but when it comes to prayer, they know they can't fool God. When this first started happening, I was shocked. It really surprised me, and I I didn't know what to do. But over time, as I grew spiritually, I came to be really thankful for those moments because it's a moment of grace. It's a moment when the heart is opened up and when we can say, you don't have to talk in a way that impresses me or impresses God. You simply need to say something. Prayer is responding to what God has said in his word in normal, everyday language. So we don't have to try and impress each other. We can just talk. I find it deeply encouraging when that happens. So any of you have free reign to say to one another, I'm scared to death to do that. I've been pretending. Okay? Why don't you try that now? Turn to somebody near you and say, I have been pretending, but we could try praying together. Go for it, if that's true of you. Sometimes we feel like we're in the minor leagues of Christianity. But Christian, if you're saved, there is no, there is no minor league. The person who has just crossed through the door of faith and the person who's been a believer for decades is on the exact same ground before Christ because they are in Christ. Will their praying sound a little different in its depth? Of course. But one is not more right with God than the other. That's the scandalous news of the gospel. The gospel makes us level, equal in Christ. The gospel means you are already 100% completely loved and accepted by God. 
So that's the first thing Jesus said, don't do. The next one won't be quite as hard, all right? The second thing Jesus said don't do is don't practice pagan prayer. Now that's not a common word for us. It was in the version we read, so let's read a different version that uses a different word. Verse 7. This is from the New Living Translation. And when you pray, don't babble on and on, as people of other religions do. They think their prayers will be answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Friends, there's no technique that you can use to manipulate God. Prayer is not the incantation of specific phrases. It's a conversation with God. Prayer is about simplicity and sincerity. It's about talking with your Heavenly Father, your Father who knows everything you need before you can voice it, your Father who knows what you're going to voice before you voice it, your Father who knows what you're going to think before you ever think it. It's so silly that we try to flower up prayer. God knows. He wants us to come before him like you'd sit in your grandfather's lap and enjoy being in his presence. We don't have to practice pagan prayer. Babbling on and on and on using fancy words won't ensure some specific response from God. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said this. How many pray the Lord's Prayer several thousand times in the course of a year? Now, some of us, that would stand out to as, like, preposterous. Who would do that? But in Martin Luther's time, people memorized and prayed the Lord's Prayer many times a day. It was deeply embedded in the religious culture of the time. And some of you have come from religious traditions that still do that. So some of us, this isn't odd to at all. How many pray the Lord's Prayer several thousand times in the course of a year? And if they were to keep on doing so for a thousand years, they would not have really prayed or tasted it at all. In other words, the Lord's Prayer is the greatest martyr on earth. Everybody tortures it and abuses it. Few take comfort and joy in its proper use. Uh, Luther, I don't know if you've ever read him or not, but that is indicative of the way he talked. He carried a baseball bat with him everywhere he went. Brutal! But the Lord used him to dismantle a system of religiosity that was not leading people to grace in Christ. Some of us grew up in traditions that used formal, memorized prayers. And it's hard for you, even now, being in a church that preaches a gospel of grace, to really think of the Father as a loving, gracious Father. I hope you'll come back next week, because Brian is going to talk about the first two words in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Do you know you can build a 40-minute talk on two words? It's going to be great. I hope you'll bring somebody with you. The Lord's Prayer, this prayer we're going to spend all this time on, can even be used in a way that neglects what it's for. So if we memorize it and we think 
simply by repeating the words that we can hold up a mask and get God to do what we want while having hearts that are hiding and cultivating sin. Brothers and sisters, that does not work. You might as well not pray if that's what you're going to do. So that's the, the posture of Jesus as he talks about prayer. As he says first, don't, don't do this. And then he spends much longer on instead do this. God doesn't hear our prayers because we sound really spiritual when we pray. He hears them because he's a good, compassionate, loving father. He hears us not because of anything you've done or anything you would say. He hears you because he loves you. That's why Jesus starts his model prayer with our Father. When we pray, Jesus started by saying, we're not to be hypocritical, hypocritical and we're not to use big fancy words as a means to impress God. Before Jesus says, pray like this, he says, don't pray like this. Now, perhaps there's a few of us in the room that are thinking, I was really excited to talk about prayer, but I don't think I'm coming back. Or maybe you think, I do have some problems with prayer, but I don't think those are my problems. Honestly, as I talk with you, my church family, privately about struggles with prayer, those aren't the things most people say. It's more likely that somebody would say, I don't really know how, or I don't have time, or I don't feel like it actually does anything. Something that people don't very often say, but is very much an aspect of why we struggle with prayer, is that we have unanswered prayers. We have times in which we faced very difficult crises, and we've prayed for something, and it hasn't happened. And that, if not thought about in the right way, can, can break the legs of prayer. None of those difficulties with prayer seem to be about hypocrisy or pagan praying. But fundamentally, all of those issues come down to misunderstanding what prayer is actually for. See, the problem with prayer is often that it's merely religious that we approach it with a religiosity. Let me illustrate it like this. Ladies, let's say that you've been married for 10 years to a really wonderful guy. All right, are you imagining, ladies? There was some sarcasm there. Now, let's say this guy, your husband, sends you a text one day, and it says this. Honey bear, I'd love to take you out on a special date this Friday night. Reservations for our favorite restaurant at 7 are already booked. Kids have a sitter. Looking forward to spending an evening with you. Now, after you pick yourself up off the floor and double check to make sure this isn't a dream, you're going to be really excited. Right? No woman I've ever met would reply to that, no thanks, we already know each other. 
Marriage is about a committed relationship, a relationship that must be nurtured. Every couple that's happy in their marriage knows you don't stop dating when you're married. You don't quit getting to know each other simply because you know each other. But how often do we approach God in prayer like that? How often does it become formal? And we tend to think, well, I already know all those stories. I already said the sinner's prayer. What's the point in all the babbling? Friends, prayer is a personal conversation with a loving God. To be a Christian is to be in a committed relationship with God, a relationship that's far more committed and far more important than marriage. So why would we make it more, more religious? The most committed relationship you will ever have with someone is with the triune God. He's number one. And he desperately longs to talk with you, to hear from you. That's what prayer is. You don't have to impress him. You don't have to clean yourselves up first. You don't have to have had the perfect week. You don't have to know exactly what to say. In fact, the scriptures tell us, when we pray and we don't even know what to pray, guess what's happening? Jesus is praying for us. So even in our praying that we don't know how to do correctly, God is praying for us. That's incredible. We are drenched in God's grace because of Christ. And that's what praying is. It's talking with a God who's covered us in grace. Our Heavenly Father has promised to never let us go, that nothing can separate us from his love. He's given off his, his Holy Spirit as a promise of life. He's more committed to you than you could ever imagine. So prayer is not holding up a Christmas list to Santa. It's not you surprising God with what you need. It's not formally reciting words while your mind is somewhere else. Genuine prayer is simply conversing with God. But so many of us only experience religious prayer. Empty prayer. And so I am thrilled that God has brought us to this moment as a body, as a family, where we can look and think deeply about prayer. If you want to learn how to pray, the last people you should ever listen to are religious people. You're far more likely, you're far better off listening to kids pray than you are listening to religious, formal prayer. Every time our gospel community meets, we eat a big meal, and then a huge pile of us gather in our living room, and we pray. From little child to seasoned adult, we do little short prayers. Open floor, anybody can pray about anything. And literally every single time, the children's prayers are the ones that capture my heart. My eight-year-old son prays far more appropriately than his 38-year-old dad. 
kids are marked by simple trust. They don't get all caught up in the yes buts. They're honest. They're transparent. They talk to God like he's sitting right there. They're not trying to press anybody. They simply think about the people in their lives and think about who God is and have a conversation with him. Don't they? That's what prayer is. You too, friend, can learn to have that experience with God in prayer. So for a couple of months, that's what we're going to do together. Let me wrap this sermon up by asking us to learn from the kids. If you're here today, and in particular, if you're here today, and you've never submitted your life to Christ, you're not a believer, here's what Christians think, here's what undergirds our belief that we have the audacity as broken people to talk to a perfect God. It's summed up in a word called the gospel. Now, if you're a Christian, don't tune out. You need the gospel too. If I could put it in a paragraph, here's what it is. The gospel is the great news that despite our best efforts at joy apart from God, there is a way to find joy and delight in God. Despite our most sincere attempts, we cannot live life as God designed it to be lived. And so Jesus left heaven, came to earth as a man, lived a perfect life in communion with God, and then died a sacrificial substitutionary death. In other words, he died in our place. He gave up his life so that we could be given his life. All the sins of all of God's people were put on Jesus at the cross. So when he died, our punishment for sin was put on him. But the great news, of course, is he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And that demonstrated his victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so now, through the resurrected King Jesus, we can call God our Father. And so every single time we come to God in prayer, Christians, we're rejoicing in the truth of the gospel. Through the resurrected King Jesus, we can now and forever call on God personally as our Father. And here's how you, non-Christian, can come to that point too. It's simple. Do you believe that Jesus came, died, and rose again? And are you willing to turn your life over to him and receive him into your life? If so, there's no magic words for that. You just simply express that to God in your own language. And in a moment, everything changes. Now, sure, coming to, to live that out will take the rest of your life. But conversion, becoming a Christian, happens in, in a moment. So do that, and then you can simply talk to God from now forever. Anytime, anywhere, you can talk to God as your Father. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer on behalf of all of us, I would encourage you individually to pray, to talk to God,
to communicate with him and ask him if there's anything you should do in response to his word preached today. Father, thank you that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can now come to you as our Father. Thank you that your word teaches us how to have a relationship with you. A relationship so personal, it's characterized as father and adopted son and daughter. Thank you that you are a perfect father. And we anticipate, God, that through this series of talks as we look at Matthew 6, that we as a, a church family will have many wonderful experiences with you. And yet, I pray that we wouldn't wait between now and next Sunday to have the next one. I pray that whatever my brothers and sisters have just prayed about and talked about with you, that you, God, in your grace would respond to them. That you, as a God of grace, would lovingly wrap your arms around your people and help them to grow, help us to grow in prayer. Father, forgive us for religious prayer, prayer that's marked by hypocrisy, prayer that's mocked, marked by big words that aren't coming from a heart of obedience. And we pray, Lord, that you would take this great family of brothers and sisters and that you would continue your work of molding and shaping us. And in particular, that you would do a work in relationship to prayer. We desperately need to become people that pray more, that pray more together, that pray more separately, and that approach you with a joyful, humble confidence. And so we ask for your help in that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.